0: And we are going to begin by going before the Lord in prayer again as for his blessing. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you again for this time that you've appointed for us to gather around the teaching of the gospel of Christ. Thank you for understanding. Thank you for giving me the ability by your spirit to speak to these things. And to speak to them boldly, we pray for understanding for myself and those who are hearing. And those who shall hear, help them Lord for the sake of Christ. And it is in his precious name we pray. Amen. This morning we are going to be in Romans 4. Again, verses 1 to 3. But the majority of our teaching is going to be from the book of James. James chapter 2 we need to make some clarifications gospel clarifications in Romans chapter 4 verse 1 to 3 Paul says what then shall we say that Abraham our father is found according to the flesh for if Abraham was justified by works he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. For second title, we have one title, maybe two. Was Abraham justified by works? And the second title related to it, Who justified Abraham by works? (laughs) Who justified Abraham by works? So we have to deal with a controversial matter with regards to the doctrine of justification and it relates to the matter of what justifies a sinner. By whom are they justified? And by what are they justified? And the controversy revolves or surrounds the teaching of the book of James. I didn't write it. (laughs) Because James seems to teach that justification is by faith plus works. Justification by faith and works. And Paul Taught repeatedly that justification is apart from works. So James and Paul emphasize different things. For Paul, the priority was faith in justification, that which has reconciled a sinner to God. And for James, It was faith in the life of the justified. Faith in action in the context of the redeemed. But many have taken the position of James of faith plus works. Especially Roman Catholicism and much of the church, so-called. That's what you're going to find. And to the extent that this matter is not resolved correctly, we can easily end up with a false gospel. If James is not read correctly, we're going to end up with a false gospel. And the matter is a serious one. Because if we miss the context and the emphasis, we may find ourselves denying the sufficiency of grace alone to justify the elect. So the devil is in the details. The devil is in definitions and understanding of the gospel itself. What are the issues of the gospel? Because the book of James does not work the details of the theology of salvation. It does not. James does not speak much of the cross, if at all. He doesn't talk about the imputation of righteousness. He assumes it. His concern thus is the practice of Christianity in the context of the church body. The practice of Christianity You brought in, in one place, different people in different areas, different cultures. How do they function as a body? Okay? And we can't go to the practice of Christianity without defining and answering biblically the issues that relate to how a sinner is justified before God and what they are justified from. Because if you do that, we end up throwing out a lot of testimony about salvation, about the matter of law and the satisfaction of God's justice by Christ Jesus. And we know that the wrath of God was due to sin and his his justice. And God is just because he is righteous and he is holy. So there has to be payment of sin in a way that satisfies him. So the question is, what puts sin away for you and me? What puts sin away and satisfies God's justice for anyone to be called a saved person? Is it works? Or is it grace alone? Or is it grace plus works? Is what, is that what satisfies your sin issues for you before God? And we know that what satisfied or propitiated God's justice was the blood of Christ alone. This testimony we have right from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. And that means that alone is the basis of justification. And by justification, the Bible means the declaration that a sinner is righteous before God. So the question to ask and answer would be, what made a sinner to be a sinner in the first place? (laughs) What made them a sinner? In other words, what does it mean to be a sinner before God? And what does God require for a sinner to be made just or righteous before him? What does God actually require? When the Bible says one is righteous or one is just, it means they are just before God. And it means they are 100% in conformity with everything that the law says to be done. If someone is righteous before God, it means they have given the law everything that the law demanded of them. Perfectly. But we have a problem. (laughs) Everyone born in Adam is a sinner. By nature, they are not able to obey God. By nature, they cannot reach the standard of righteousness that God has stipulated. Because the Bible says all have fallen short of the glory of God. And as we remarked in the previous teaching, To sin means to have no share in righteousness. Sinners have no share in righteousness. We have a shareholding in sin, not in righteousness. Our only shareholding in righteousness is because of the righteousness of another. That is Christ Jesus. Okay? So a sinner is one born in Adam. Okay? Okay? They're born in Adam. That's the first definition of it. By nature, you are a sinner. Whether you've done anything or not, it doesn't matter. You're a sinner. So infants are sinners because they're born in Adam. Even if all they know is just to cry because they have a wet diaper. <laughs> so a sinner is one, because of that, who is not able to produce the righteousness That God requires by their own obedience. By their own obedience to the law of God. Sinners are not able naturally even with the Holy Spirit they are not able to produce that standard of righteousness. Because we are still in the flesh we still carry our flesh and the flesh is always warring with the Spirit. And where there's warring, you can't talk of anybody being righteous. (laughs) So God's standard of righteousness is not good works that are sprinkled with resins here and there of your own righteousness, but a life of total and complete obedience. Life from birth to the last second of your life. You have to be righteous. And so that leaves only one person to be a righteous person, and that is Christ Jesus. It is therefore impossible to have a faithful teaching of faith and works if one has not understood the issues of the gospel. I highly encourage people to take the time and listen carefully, understand the issues. We have to understand the issues of the gospel because that affects what we emphasize. It affects what we consider to be the gospel. And what people emphasize is what they believe to be the gospel. We emphasize Christ because Christ alone is our gospel. He is our righteousness. He is our sanctification. He is our redemption. He is our everything. Okay? So what people emphasize as justifying them is what they believe to some degree helps in the satisfaction of their sin before God. So if someone says, well, my works are important to my acceptance before God. They are saying one or two or ten things that they've done is going to help them to get acquitted of their sins. And we have learned, and we are learning from Apostle Paul that by the deeds of the law shall no man be justified before God. No flesh shall be justified by the deeds of the law, the deeds of the flesh would mean our obedience to the law in good works and faithfulness. And God says that is not the basis of how a sinner is declared to be righteous before him. Even if Sean was to be righteous in every way, That would not be the basis of his coming to God. That would not entitle him to the life and righteousness of God in Christ. Why? Because that is not the basis on which God grants it. Life and righteousness are only granted on the basis of the person of Christ. So it doesn't matter if you were able to duplicate what Jesus did. That still is not the basis. The basis is Christ Jesus. Okay? So, the gospel, the gospel says a righteousness has been revealed that is apart from the law, the righteousness of God. The righteousness that is by the faithfulness of Christ the righteousness which is by the faithfulness of Christ, people tend to want to emphasize their faith more than the faith of Christ. And yet the proper understanding is our righteousness is by the faithfulness of Christ, the obedience of Christ. And this righteousness is credited to the redeemed freely apart from any works of righteousness on our part. God freely credits this righteousness and has already done so in Christ. Okay? So we go to Galatians 2.21. Galatians 2.21. Paul says, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, Christ died in vain. We could rewrite that without changing the meaning and say, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes by me, then Christ died in vain. If righteousness comes by me, then Christ died In vain, we did not change the letter and spirit of that statement. So if righteousness, which is justification, came by our own works of the flesh in obedience to the law in good works, then Christ died for nothing. And that statement is saying justification before God cannot happen by anything that we do ourselves. Righteousness is only by the grace of God in the dying of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So a sinner is only made and declared righteous before God by the death of Christ and nothing else. There's nothing else that justifies a sinner before God. Nothing. Okay? So if anyone comes and says, your justification before God is based on something that they did or that they are doing or will do, then they are not telling the truth. They are not telling the truth. They may have verses. Just because people have verses does not mean they understand the matter. What a sinner does cannot justify, cannot justify before God because it could never satisfy the justice of God in righteousness. By reason that anything that you and I do, even on our best day, is always tended with sin. Our best deeds and prayers have enough sin to send us to hell a million times over and back. So we had Apostle Paul say this in Romans four to three, which was the subject of our teaching last Sunday. Romans 4, 1-3, to Paul said, What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, is found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, justified before God by works, he has something to boast about, something to beat his little chest, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Abraham was a lazy boy theology guy. He believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. Abraham was not justified before God by works. In other words, his sins were not forgiven on the basis of what he did in good works. This is not how God deals with the matter of sin and righteousness. If Abraham was made righteous by something that he did, yeah, then he has something to boast. Even if it is 1%. If you have 1% shareholding in a company, in Amazon, you are a shareholder of Amazon. Even if you have 0.5%, you are still a shareholder in Amazon stock. And God is saying, in the matter of righteousness, your investment is zero. Zero shareholding. Whatever you have was freely given you 100%, given by God in Christ. Also, if you contribute 1% in salvation, Then you were only served by ninety-nine percent of grace, and ninety-nine percent grace is not grace. It is works. Grace does not admit of any mixing with works for the justification of a sinner. Okay, so grace is hundred percent, or it's not grace, and this truth cannot be destroyed. Because if and when we do that, then we have denied the cross of Christ and what he accomplished and we believe a false gospel. Romans 4, verse 20 to 26. Maybe it's Romans 3. I think it's Romans 3. We are yet to work through Romans 4 that far. Verse 20 to 26, Romans 3 Paul says for no one is declared righteous before him by the works of the law for through the law comes the knowledge of sin but now apart from the law the righteousness of God although it is attested by the law and the prophets has been disclosed has been revealed namely the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Justified freely through the redemption that is the merit of justification. The redemption redemption means the ransom payment set free by a payment of a price that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25, God publicly displayed him at his death as the message accessible through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because God, in his forbearance, had passed over the sins previously Committed. This was also to demonstrate his righteousness in the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who lives because of Jesus' faithfulness. God is the justifier and he has to justify you on good legal grounds because he cannot compromise on his own righteousness. And so, he only has one option to declare you a righteous person, and that is through the faithfulness of Christ Jesus. So all the elect have been justified freely by his grace through the redemption or blood sacrifice that is in Christ Jesus. Justification before God is through the faithfulness of Christ which is the righteousness of another. And we have to keep hitting, beating this dog or donkey or horse even though it's dead <laughs> and say <it> again <laughs> this is the only basis of justification that removes all your sin and condemnation. And justification is not an ongoing act that you maintain by your works. You don't get justified today, lose the justification because you watched some bad movie, and then go back to God again and be justified. And the rest of your life, you are constantly going in and out of the state of justification. It does not work like that. Once the judge has pronounced you as not guilty, been set free, that's it. It's done. Okay? Because justification is a one-time act accomplished in Christ on the cross and the sanctified, the elect, the redeemed, have been perfected, justified by the one offering of Christ on the cross. And God declaring them that they are righteous because all their sins were satisfied. They were atoned for. They were paid for. We don't owe God anything with respect to righteousness. It's a scandal. We do not owe God anything. And God knows it. And that's what God is saying. God is saying, Katie, you don't owe me anything in respect of righteousness. You don't have to try to be righteous. You're righteous because Christ has already sinned to it. What you owe me now is praise. You have to praise me for what I've done for you. So knowing all that, we cannot conclude that a sinner is justified by God by the cross plaza are works to top up. There's no pizza toppings when it comes to righteousness. Okay, there's no topping up of righteousness in this business. Because if the cross completely justified God's people, which it did, both Christ resurrected and Christ is seated, because He justified His people. He made an end to the purification of sin. That's why he is seated. And he could not sit as long as he had not justified all his people. But then he would still be under the law. But that's what the problem with the law was. The high priest could never sit because he never finished the justification of his people. Okay, But the Christ is seated because he justified all his people. So the question now that we have to ask and answer is are the works of the believers to complete their acceptance before god what are the works for what do they do those works what do they actually do in respect of your relationship with god are the works to improve your standing before him? Or are they for the testimony of those who are already served, who live in the community of believers? What is it that you are doing anyway that God does not already know? That you will say, Oh, I didn't realize Ella had some good works. Let me factor that in in a big Closet in heaven. (laughs) In other words, what was James talking about? Because James does not speak of anything, as I said, relating to the imputation of righteousness of Christ. James was not preaching the cross in his writing. He was writing to a community of believers. He was writing to a people who had already accepted Christ. So James was speaking to how the community of believers ought to act and live in the light of their salvation. And it was necessary for them to have Christian maturity and not continue with the thinking they had before they knew the truth about Christ. So the Holy Spirit has to come and teach them of their responsibilities and duties in the context of the family of the redeemed. Okay, And I believe that James was saying, true religion finds an expression in service. It has signs and symptoms like a woman who is pregnant. Because one who is impregnated of Christ will be in service to other people in one way or the other. I remember when I used to work at Baking, I have all these stories. That this woman who was pregnant and the pregnant loved frozen cock. She would come like three times during my shift. She'd like She'd be there at six in the morning. she will be back at 10. She'd be back for lunch. Just to get the one single thing. Her pregnancy just was craving for frozen cock. Yeah? So, this is what is happening to this community. In this community, James was displeased with the inconsistencies and double standards that were being applied Or practiced. In chapter 1, just as laying the foundation of the thinking around James, in chapter 1, James had exhorted that the believers should consider joy when they enter into diverse trials that they should keep soldiering on because God was behind the trials and He gave the example of Job and how he overcame and how God restored him and how they were to stand on God's word. And they should also, in the process of doing that, mind their tongue because the tongue is a very powerful weapon. It is destructive if it is not bridled. So you already see the tone of what James is discussing. James is not discussing how you become righteous before God. So hopping over into chapter 2 of James, he says the believer must serve his brothers and sisters in Christ. He or she is to accept all members of God's family without favoritism without partiality. That is what he addresses in the first opening verses of verse 1 to 13. And they are to help the church family with a working faith. They are to help the, working, the church family with a working faith and that's verses 14 to 26. Essentially, those are the two sections in James 2. Believers should know that they have the same standing before God because of Christ. Believers should know that they are already accepted by God in Christ. But this community of believers had formed cliques, tribes around Christ with some thinking they were superior and better Christians than others. And James set to level the ground by way of reading the riot act and spared them to maturity. And this is how he did it. And that will take us to James 2 verse 1. And you know that we are done when we get to verse 26. (laughs) My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. So James begins by saying, guys, brothers and sisters, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus with partiality, with prejudice. Or favoritism, do not take a man's position or station in life or society into account when it comes to your treatment of them in the body of Christ. It is a big no, no, and that means this was probably happening in this community of believers. Okay? this community of people who who were already justified by God. Otherwise, there would not be such a community if they were not already justified by God. But this community was importing worldly ideas of class into the body of Christ and that was contrary to the Lord's teaching who said we ought to be servants and serve one another as he gave example so to what was happening verse 2 to 4 for if they should come into your assembly a man with gold rings in fine apparel and they should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him You sit here in a good place and say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So there we have some man with gold rings, looks, sounds like some hip-hop artist, some rap artist. And when these guys show up in church, I'm telling you, you're going to see the same stuff that Jeff is talking about. When they do, if they have some form of religion and they do show up, there's going to be commotion in that church because of the gold rings and chains and stuff like that. (laughs) But there was favoritism that was happening in the church with the well-to-do people getting preferential treatment and much recognition At the expense of the poorer congregants who were being despised. So James' brethren are guilty of discriminatory divisions or practices, and also they're guilty of assuming to themselves the role of judges with evil thoughts of partiality. And it happens A great deal in many churches in our time. The people who give the most money always get the most recognition. In some churches, they have special comfy couches right in the front of the church reserved for the highest givers. These highest givers have access to the pastors, they have one on one meetings with the pastor and the majority of the crowd cannot approach their own pastors with the issues, they remain unreachable. Not because the pastor is too busy, because these guys are full-time, that's all they're supposed to be doing, but because his time has been taken up by the world to do people. And James says, when you do that, you have judged with evil thoughts. Why? Because you have made distinction where Christ has removed the distinction. This is a very important point. They are making a distinction where Christ has removed the distinction. Christ has made everybody one to the same level, same righteousness, same blessing. And yet these guys are coming And they want to create those distinctions, artificial distinctions that give them the recognition, make them feel like they're better people. Verse 5. Listen, my beloved brethren. You see, just that statement tells you that these people are already saved. Listen, my beloved brethren. James could not be saying that to unsaved people. Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? So James goes to election to try and stamp out the problem of favoritism just as Paul did with the Corinthian church because of the same issue of division. The James people were dividing along class lines, the poor and the rich. The Corinthians were dividing and saying, I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Severs. I am of Christ. I belong to this camp and that camp. And then Paul says, well, you calling yourself, you're of Paul. Did Paul die for you? <laughs> and Paul says that cannot happen only Christ died for you do not associate your salvation with a particular preacher or any man no matter how renowned they are but with Christ with Christ alone so Paul appealed to the doctrine of election, to remove any divisions and any sense of security that may have been in the Corinthian church. He had to kill it. And the only way to kill it was to bring the doctrine of election by grace alone to say you are here not because of anything found in you, but because God chose you. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 1. Twenty-six to twenty-nine. First Corinthians twenty-six to twenty-nine. Paul says, "For you see your calling, brethren. Consider your calling, brethren, that not many wise are according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise." And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. So Paul says, remove your tribal thinking From your minds because God did not consider it in His election. He chose a few from the mighty. He chose a few from the noble, from the upper class echelons of society. He only chose a few, but the majority of them are not wise. The foolish things. We belong to the class called the foolish people. The weak things, the base things, the despised, the things that are not, that are even below base. Those are the things that are not, that you can't even pay attention to and say, oh, actually that was nice, okay. It's beyond your recognition. You don't even consider it as anything. The things that are not, that no flesh should boast in his presence. Okay, So while James was not as extensive as Paul in his treatment of election, he still argued the same doctrine to treat the same issue that it arisen with his crowd. Hear this again. Verse 5 of James 2. Listen, my beloved brethren. That's a command. Listen. (laughs) Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him so the poor are in the church? By God's choosing, by God's doing, and they are the majority of them. That is how God has determined to do things Because the poor stand to preach our spiritual poverty before God because of lack of righteousness. Everyone who does not have their own righteousness that is acceptable to God are naturally poor. So the poor are there as a testimony of our own lack of righteousness. Okay, And so they are to be found in the greatest number in the church of God. And the poor have been made poor by God and not by Joe Biden. Okay. It's God who maketh poor and it's God who maketh rich. Okay, It's all of God's doing. Verse 6 of James 2. But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the cause. James says favoritism dishonors the poor people whom Christ has redeemed. How is that? Because God has bestowed much honor to the poor by making them rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he promised to those who love him so the poor are only poor in the eyes of the world but are not poor with respect to God. They are rich in the things that really matters. The really significant, useful riches are found in Christ by faith. Faith in the Lord Jesus as far as God is concerned is greater riches than anything that this world has to give, so despising them is bad, but in contrast, the rich that are given honor by men are they the ones who oppress the poor and drag them into the courts. The much celebrated men and women of power are they who sponsor and write laws and bills that oppress the poor and put them in courts and jail. And yet when the same class of people come into the church, they are honored more than the poor. And this is the other thing they do. Verse 7, Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? The very rich people... Blaspheme the name of the Lord Jesus. The name by which you are called. These people have no regard for it. The Babylon Bee recently did an interview with Elon Musk. You can probably find it on YouTube. And they let him get away with murder. Instead of pressing the truth of Christ, they allowed him to to blaspheme the name of Jesus by limiting Jesus to just a very good teacher, no higher, no better than Mahamta Gandhi of India. Because once you say Jesus is just a good teacher, then you have reduced him to the Dalai Lama. I like the Dalai Lama, but the Dalai Lama does not know the Christ of God. Okay? Okay? So they were under the spell of the riches and power of Elon Musk, so much that they could not even stand for the truth of Christ. So James sought to remind them of how they were to treat and relate to each other as the body of Christ. And he gives us, as he gave them, the alternative solution. And he says, Love is the right way and favoritism is sin. Verse 8, James says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. James says the solution to their partiality was in going back to what the Lord Jesus Christ had taught. Which thing he called the royal law. That is in contrast to the law of Moses. Royal implies here something that is coming from a king. So, this is the law of the king for his subjects. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So, if you love the poor as yourself, and the rich as yourself, then you love them both without partiality. You love them both without partiality. But if you show partiality, verse 9, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Partiality, favoritism is sin and it is not encouraged or welcomed in the body. Of Christ, We ought to be smiling and loving one another when we are together as the body of Christ. We have to trust each other. That's the only way we can serve one another. Verse 10, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. If you have been a Berean listener, you know we have been here 20,000 times before. if one, James says, is showing partiality, they'll be condemned by the law. But why did James say this about the law to his saved brethren? Was he saying they're under the law? Because many would not have considered That favoritism was a big deal. Many in the crowd would not have considered. They were just thinking, "Oh, I'm just talking to my buddy buddies. These are my people." Jesus says, "No, that's sin." They would have been dismissing the offense of prejudice as nothing important, as something trivial even though it was not working in the best interest of that body of believers, they were dismissing it. They probably were not even considering themselves in that regard as lawbreakers. And remember, this crowd was comprised of ethnic Jews who would be so familiar with the law. And James says, well, favoritism... Is sin, and if you break any law, you are guilty of the whole thing. So, Jen's point was not that they were under the law, his point was to show them that favoritism was a sin which is condemned under the law. If they were not in Christ. Just that favoritism was enough to get them condemned. That's what James is arguing. They would not have been thinking it. Verse 11, hear this. To keep with James' argument, for he who say do not commit adultery also say do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the whole law. See the unity of the law. If you break one commandment of the law, you have broken them all. If you do not murder, but you commit adultery, you have done both. (laughs) You have never, you rarely ever hear preachers say that about the law. You are guilty of the whole law So if you show favoritism, you're just as guilty as the one who committed adultery and murder. That's what James is saying. He wants to amplify the seriousness of what they're doing and elevating it to the point of murder and adultery, which would have been offensive to them. But he's saying it to awaken them. This is a way to bring them to their knees to remind them that they are lawbreakers whose standing was by God's grace alone. Vestkov. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. So a very important statement has been made here. He says, So speak and so do as those who shall be judged by the law of liberty. What is the law of liberty? That is the law of the gospel. The believers are judged by the law of grace, not the law of Moses. And James is saying, Speak and do as those who know that you shall not be judged according to your sins. Because the law of liberty does not judge you according to your sins. It judges you according to Christ. Believers are not judged by the law of Moses because it will condemn them. But they are judged by the law of liberty. Now, with that James continues and says, verse eighteen: for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. And that could be difficult to interpret. Because it will sound like James is conditioning God's mercy on you on your showing mercy on others. And I believe James is coming from Matthew 6, 14 to 15, but we'll qualify the statements. Let's go to Matthew 6, 14 to 15. The Lord said in Matthew 16, in response to the disciples after they'd asked him to teach them how to pray, he said, Matthew 6, 14 and 15, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. So it sounds like God is waiting for people to forgive other people's sins before he forgives them. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. So that sounds like conditional forgiving of sins that has to begin with you. But this is a difference. The Lord Jesus was speaking to those under the law, and the law is conditional. But He surely was not conditioning the forgiveness of sins on our forgiving others because that would mean that the cross would also be in vain. That is not how the gospel works. When Jesus was in Palestine, He was Speaking to a people who were under the law, they were a people who were in transition, because the New Testament was about to be enacted in his blood. So this is where we are in our understanding of how sins are forgiven and the reason why we should forgive others. Ephesians 4.32 Ephesians 4.32 says and be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. This is where we stand. Our motivation to forgive and to be tender hearted towards one another is driven. By the reason that God has already unconditionally forgiven us of all our sins. That has to be the motivation and grounds of forgiving other people. Colossians 3, 12 to 14. Colossians 3, 12 to 14. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender masses, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. So the basis of all those things that have been stated is the truth that God in Christ has forgiven you. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. So forgiveness, the forgiveness that we may render to other people is conditioned on our own forgiveness. We are not forgiving anyone to be forgiven of God. Because if that were the situation, then we are in serious trouble. Because there are just some people that are very hard to forgive. <laughs> okay? But James says, Mercy triumphs over judgment. That is verse 13 of James 2. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And that is to say Christians are to be merciful people as we have received mercy. And God's judgment on the unredeemed sinners is without mercy. In other words, he will not listen to excuses. He will judge according to what everyone has done who is not in Christ But the difference is that the elect have have received grace and mercy and because of that they will not come into the judgment. They have passed from death unto life. If you really understand what that means I think this is just the most beautiful thing that God has taught the children of men. That knowing who you are as a sinner the thing that is struggle with, with sin. The thing that you have done. And God saying, not a single one of those things is going to ever be asked of you. God is never, ever going to bring it to say, okay, this is what he did. What do you think? So it's scandalous. It's unbelievably scandalous. And it's wonderful news. Okay? It's wonderful news. So that has to be the driving force for us to be a joyful people, a forgiving people, when we have been wronged. Because what we deal with on a day-to-day basis does not really form the basis of our standing before God. Okay? Verse 14. James says, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith serve him? What prophet is James talking about? Is he talking about the prophet of salvation? As in actually being justified before God because of our works? And for the answer, we got the context of the text. The context will define for us what prophet James has in mind. And so he illustrates his point by a hypothetical example. Verse 15 and following. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily bread or daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? So that defines the context of what James is talking about. The prophet is not salvation. The prophet is in what the other person who is in need, the brother and sister gains from what we do or what we have done for them to help their situation. And I got caught. The, the Lord is amazing. I got caught when I was preparing this message I was at this verse and then some sister out there she knows the name across the seas she said oh brother do you have time to talk I'm like uh I looked at my message and I'm like okay let's talk and then we spoke for an hour and she was telling me about her life and all the issues that she's dealing with And she's looking for accommodations, trying to save the money and stuff like that. And the conclusion of the matter to me was, okay, sister, I'm going to have to send you some money. Because I could not conclude the conversation by saying, oh, I'm going to be praying for you. I I knew I had a little bit of money. And so I said, okay, I'm going to send you some money. You should be able to collect it this week. That was the conclusion of it. But the conviction came from that. I could not just be telling her all these things to keep soldiering on. Oh, the Lord is faithful and all those things which are true. But the Lord showed himself to be faithful by me providing for her. And so that was the prophet that James was talking about. Okay, so did that justify me before God? Or it justified me before her to say this brother and this gospel. They're telling the truth. They are telling the truth of Christ. Because only on account of Christ have we formed the relationship. And only on account of Christ was I moved to go to my bank and send the money. That's the context of James. Okay? And so James is speaking to the imperatives of the faith, the instructions of the faith. What we do or are supposed to do as the community of believers to not be hardened to the needs of those who are around us. We do not function in a vacuum and so these are the guidelines for us. Okay, so Paul said the same thing in Galatians 2 when he said, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Just bearing each other's burdens, helping to carry the heavy loads. And the heavy loads come in season. They're not always there. But when you have a body of Christ, you have people who are dealing with all kinds of things. Some issues you won't be able to meet. Other issues, God will give you the grace to meet the need. That's how it works. Verse 17, that's also faith by itself. If it does not have works, is dead. Okay, we need to qualify some things. The deadness of faith is not saying that the person is not saved. Because James is speaking to serve people. it is speaking to believers who are negligent in meeting the needs of others. But that's what the context is. The deadness of the faith is not that the person is not served. It's just that the person is not doing things that God has put in front of them to do something about. It is not deadness in respect of not being saved, but in respect of being negligent to the needs of others who are in the body of Christ. Because if this was a denial of the Lord Jesus Christ, If this was James' understanding of the deadness, then he would have been preaching repentance and faith to them. James was not preaching repentance and faith because those were already assumed by him calling them beloved brethren. Okay, And he would have been writing a book like the book of Galatians or the book of Romans if it were an issue of them not believing the truth about Christ. So James is speaking to our response to faith and in faith, knowing all that we know about what God has done for us. Because God did not just come and wish us the best in our salvation and said, I am praying day and night for you. Hopefully, you get that righteousness. you get that clothing that leads to eternal life. He actually came and provided all that we needed. So, something must be done to meet the pressing needs of food and clothing for the poor in the community of believers, of which, given James' background, James was the presiding elder of the church at Jerusalem, which was a very poor church. You're going to find that in the teaching of Apostle Paul, because Paul had to make a collection for the church of Jerusalem to give them because they were poor. So you see why James would be so sensitive to the matter because his congregation was poor. Okay? Verse 18. But someone who saying, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Here, you have to read it carefully. The discussion is now between someone who was saying there are two people who are in conversation in that statement. The first person comes and says, I have my faith and I do not need to do any work of kindness to anybody. And the other is saying, I have works, lots of them, and I do not need to have faith. Okay, So those are the two extremes. And James says, true faith is accompanied by or produces works. It produces not a quantity of works but a sensitivity to the needs of others and a desire, a readiness to meet them. So it's not about the quantity of the works. It's about the desire to want to do something about the situation. Because if you evaluate your faith bears on quantity of works. Then you begin to pursue salvation as if it is of works, as what happened with Israel. See that the family of the church is a new family to you and I. It is a family that naturally would not feel any obligation To support. This is not the family that has people who have the same or share the same last name as you. This is a totally different family. But it's a family that has its own rules and table manners. Remember, we did a message titled table manners or something to that end. And God is saying, this is your family. The church is your eternal family. And true faith will cause you to support it, to have an investment in it. So that you, by the means that God has given you, in the time and season, you can meet what God brings. So true faith will cause you to love love those that God has gathered around you in the name of Christ. Verse 19. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Now, to the matter of faith without works, James takes it another notch and says, You believe that there is one God in monotheism. Because many people think that believing in the one God is evidence of salvation. The Muslims say, Oh, we believe in Allah. We don't understand this Trinitarian God of yours. If you understand, sorry, if you believe in the Trinity, then by definition, you are not saved, and we are saved because we have one God whom we call Allah. And James says, You do well if you believe that there is one God. There's nothing wrong with that. That is correct. Yes, there's one God but that's not good enough why because even the demons believe the same and guess what they go a step further they even tremble they shudder they have a response they tremble trembling is their response demons believe And know that there is one God. They know that for sure, but they've seen him. But they're not saved. Demons are not saved because the faith of the gospel is not in you and me believing that there's one God, even though it is part and parcel of it. You can't believe in Christ and not come to the knowledge and truth that there's one God. But that's not the basis of your salvation. The basis of your salvation is in that Christ is your righteousness before God. Before the one God. Which the demons do not believe. Anyway, Christ did not die for the demons. The book of Hebrews will tell us that. That he did not die for the angels. Right? So demons do not believe in the gospel even though they fear God. There are a lot of people who claim to fear God, even in the professing church world, who believe a false gospel. But they'll claim to fear God, and they'll try to align their lives as God-fearing people. But when it comes to the real matter of salvation, they are not holding to the truth of Christ Jesus. And James' point is, just as the demons have a response to their knowledge of God, we also, as the redeemed, have a response. Right? The demons tremble, but we work. Work not to cause salvation. Because remember Paul talked about he worked more than all of the apostles. And then he says, but not me but the grace of God was working through me. Okay? So God is at work in us to will and do for his good pleasure. Verse 30. Verse twenty-seven. But do you want to know, all foolish men, that faith without works is dead? At this point, James does not continue with his arguments he considered to rebuke the objector and said, Oh foolish man, <laughs> you're just foolish. And foolish there is also translated as empty, as hollow or vain. And James' point is not anti faith and pro wax. Or pro works and anti faith. He is saying true faith shows itself with works. In other words, works are the fruit of faith. And let us now here you make illustrations from two selected examples from the Old Testament. The first one being the more controversial one because it sounds like James was opposing what we know to be the truth, opposing Apostle Paul. And I have to give also some detail here. And I won't be surprised that James would write like this. Because if you go and read the New Testament, you'd know that James was very much for the law. I think it's an area that God slowly granted him repentance. He was part of the crowd that caused a lot of trouble with respect to the continuity of Moses. Okay? And if you read the book of Galatians, you know that Cephas, Peter, was rebuilt by Paul after the crowd from James came from Jerusalem and found. Paul and found Peter dining, hanging out with Gentiles. And then when Peter saw the crowd from James, he withdrew from them. And then Paul was so mad and said, James, you, sorry, and said, Peter, you have to be condemned because of what you're doing. Because before you were hanging out with the Gentiles, Saying you have accepted the people that Christ is accepted by grace alone. But when this law crowd people came, you started separating from them. So I'll be surprised that James would write this way. It's not saying that he was right in things that are wrong, but the degree of emphasis. Paul is going to write the same things of exhortations and instructions, but he doesn't write with the same force as James does. Okay? So I just thought I would say that. But hear this. Exhibit number one for James' argument, verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? And this happened in Genesis 22 when Abraham had already been declared to be righteous by God in Genesis 15, verse 6. So there's a difference of seven chapters between these two events. And when Abraham was declared to be righteous, he did not have any child. Okay. It was at, it was at least 20 years later that Abraham offered Isaac on Mount Moriah. So Abraham was declared by God as righteous by faith alone before the offering of Isaac on Mount Moriah. And that means the justification that James is talking about is not the justification of Genesis 15.6. Genesis 15.6 is the basis of your standing before God. Genesis 22 is not the basis of your standing before God. James is not talking about justification unto salvation, but the showing of the evidence of the justification that Abraham already possessed by faith. And that means works do not. Even those that are ordained of God. They do not necessarily happen at the time, in the week, or month, or year that one was born again. It has taken more than 22 years for Abraham to get this testimony. And yet he was already righteous. So you can be a Christian for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years even. And God will not give you opportunity to do some things. Okay? Some people later in life when and if God blesses them they'll do whatever God will give them money to do or strength to do. Either time it doesn't have to always be money because it seems in this time of ours, everybody's thinking money. But Abraham did not offer any money here. <laughs> okay? But I need you to make that point clear in your mind that it took more than two decades for Abraham to get that testimony and yet he was already righteous before God. Okay? So which means what happened two decades later is not the basis of his justification before God. So your works could never be the basis of your justification before God. Verse 22. Do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works faith was made perfect. And for that statement, let's go to Hebrews 11, 17 to 19. Hebrews 11, 17 to 19, the writer of Hebrews says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said in Isaac your seed shall be called concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead from which he also received him in a figurative sense or in a type so Abraham trusted that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead that God was able so Faith also is saying, God is able to deliver what he promised to do, which is your salvation and mine. And by this he was made perfect. His faith was made mature. It's not like he got more perfected. No, his faith was made mature. It was carried to the end of what God meant by it. So the point being made is that the person of faith who complete whatever task that God has brought them to do, even though it may be a difficult task, as what happened with Abraham, that was not an easy task to wake up and go and try sacrifice your own son. I'm sure Abraham. Had some bad thoughts about God, I'm sure he did. He had some bad things that were not printed for us. <laughs> okay? But the point is that faith, the faith that God gives, will cause you to trust in His faithfulness to provide the means or ability to do what pleases him, okay? Okay. Let's go to Second Corinthians nine six to eleven. We are nearing to the end. You know we are finishing in verse twenty 2 Corinthians nine six to eleven. I want to show you how this thing works, because many people think that once the Bible, the New Testament, talks about works, then you have to go out tonight. And get on your computer, open your spreadsheet, and begin to write things that you have to write and do to affirm, confirm that you are a man or woman of faith. No, that's not what this means. Hear this is from Paul. But this I say He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. That's just the matter of Life. If you plant on 100 acres, you're going to have a bigger harvest than someone who plants on one acre. Okay? So that's a statement of fact. But let's hear the qualification of it as Paul continues. Verse 7. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity. For God loves a cheerful giver. So whenever you are giving, ultimately, you are not giving necessarily because of the situation. God is not interested in that. He could actually provide that need through an unbeliever. God is saying, give from a cheerful heart. That's what I like. Because when I gave my own son, I cheerfully gave him to you. I did not bring Christ under compulsion. Also, this is in reference to the law, because under the law, you were required to give. It was not optional. Under grace, God says, as you please, to the level that makes you happy, if it's five bucks, if it's 10, if it's 100, if it's clothing, if it's shoes, as you please. Okay? All right. So verse, verse 7 again. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a hilarious giver. That's where, that's where hilarious actually comes from. Verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. As it is written, he has dispersed abroad, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness while you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. This is what Paul is saying. When you have to give, you give with the mind that God does not need it. God is looking at your attitude when you do it. Okay? So when he brings a situation that demands for you to do something, for the sake of Christ, he provides the means for you to do it. here verse eight again of second Corinthians nine and God is able to make all grace abound toward you. God is able to furnish you with everything that you need to meet the situation that He has brought to your attention so God is working both the situation that, is, that has need for you to meet and is also providing what you need to meet the need. Okay? So, and God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you also, that you always having all the sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. So, if you have a situation that requires $10,000 and you don't have it, then you are not the one who was supposed to meet it. So don't go home feeling condemned because you could not meet it. That's the point. God will match your ability to give with the situation at hand. That's what Paul is saying. So you don't have to manufacture it. So Abraham did not engineer the offering of Isaac on Mount Moriah. It's God who brought it to him. It's God who gave Isaac to both Sarah and Abraham when they were old. And then it is God who asked Abraham to offer his son. And then it was God who brought the ram that was caught in the thicket. That ended up dying in the place of Isaac. And even Abraham said to Isaac, my son, God will provide himself a lamb. So God will provide himself in every situation he will see to it. That's what that is saying. God will bring a solution to every problem that you and I will meet as the body of Christ, and even in this life. Okay? Verse 23 of James. And the scripture was fulfilled, we says Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Now, we have to ask a question. Was James references The offering of Isaac as the evidence of faith in action was that the only thing or time that the faith of Abraham was found in action. No, it wasn't. But the book of Hebrews is going to be talking or telling us about Abraham and not having a home in Canaan. He was looking to that city which is not made of hands, the Jerusalem from above. So all the things that Abraham was doing in his life were testimony of his faith in Christ. He was always looking forward to Christ. So we also are always looking forward to Christ and much of the testimony has nothing with to do with us giving people anything. <laughs> it's just our own attitude and mind to what God has said about us in Christ and the promises that he has given. And I asked that question because I wanted to make a point to say what happened to Abraham was not just a one-time thing. Because if we think like that, then we are going to start thinking that we also have to look for our own moment where we offered up our own Isaacs. You want to look for your own definitive moment that when you look back to it, like, oh man, I think I was just right there. Okay? I'm trying for us not to think like that because that will take us into despair. Despair of novel gazing, thinking, well, When I did that, but was that good enough? Was that my real Isaac moment? Or maybe I have to wait for another. And once you do that, that's not faith anymore. That's works. And we don't want to go there. Okay? Also, Abraham offered Isaac, his only son. And this is not saying for you to prove that your faith is living faith. You have to offer something big. You have to sell your house, sell your car, and go to work on foot just to prove your faith. That's not the point at all. Okay. So these things need to be qualified because people end up making bad decisions that don't really help them in salvation. We don't want to think that way. Okay. Verse 24. James says, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. So this is not justified by works before God because we already know from the clearer teaching on the subject of justification that justification before God is apart from works that we've done. That it is by grace alone so that none should boast. Abraham passed the test of offering Isaac and that is what affirmed and justified to himself that he was already justified. He passed a test and yet he was already loved of God just as what happened to Job. Job was already elect. All the things that happened to him did not cause him to be righteous God already said Job was a righteous man at the very beginning. And his ability, God-given ability to resist and to endure the trials and temptations of his health, of losing his family, losing his wealth, and all those things. Those things did not cause him to be righteous. They just affirmed that he was already righteous. Okay? So that's exactly what happened to Abraham. Okay, so Abraham passed the test and that was for his own benefit, not for the benefit of God. Okay, he trusted God that God would be able to raise Isaac from the dead even if he had offered him and indeed God gave Isaac back to Abraham in a type of the resurrection of Christ. Now, as we close this message, we have to go back and emphasize the bigger issues of the gospel. And we know much of our understanding of the gospel from the writing of Apostle Paul. And Pauline theology is justification by faith alone because of Christ alone. And faith means justification by Christ alone. There's no one. Who has faith who is not justified by Christ alone? If they are not justified by Christ alone, they do not possess faith. Because Christ is he who justified by his blood. So James has to be saying, one's faith is evidenced by what they do but what they do is not basis of their justification before God. And James does not say these people by their works cease to be sinners anymore. Because if you are not glorified, you shall sin one way or the other. Faith in Christ is and should be the motivation for the redeemed to be kind people in general, and especially to the brethren. Faith working through love towards the brethren confirms to them that one is justified. Faith represents the totality of the doctrine of salvation. It is not a faith that is not defined. Faith has to be defined what it is that we are talking about it. Because a lot of people say, oh, yes, I believe in God. Yes, I believe in Jesus. But what do they actually mean by that? So it has to be defined. Exhibit 2, verse 25. That's the last exhibit. James 2.25, likewise was not rare, but the hallowed also justified by works When she received the messengers and sent them out another way. We did two messages on Rehab from Joshua chapter 2 and Joshua chapter 6. And we know that Rehab was not justified by sending people out of a gate. But if that's the case, man, 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 Christ died in vain. Okay? That was just faith in action but not the basis of justification. And James' conclusion was, verse 26, that's that's our last verse, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Apart from the spirit, the body is dead. So faith without works is also dead. So what is James saying? Faith in Christ is a living Faith because we are indwelled by the Spirit of the Living God. And God works in us, as I said, to both will and to do for His good pleasure. And in His time, we are ordained to good works, and none of what He ordained shall shall fail to happen shall fall to the ground unfulfilled. God is going to see to it. Yes, the redeemed do good works. I know it's controversial, but it's very simple. The redeemed are righteous people because of Christ. And Christ has ordained the works that they do. He's the one who brings them to completion. So because we are justified, And because we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And because the works are ordained by God to be done. For that reason alone they are good. They are not good because of Sean. They are good because of where they are coming from. They are good because of Christ. Okay? So we know this from Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them so all the redeemed have gifts to the end of doing the good works that God has prepared for them some are more conspicuous than others but the more conspicuous ones are not necessarily the most important the heart the lungs The kidneys are members of the body and yet they cannot be seen. But without them, the body is dead. They do the most important work. My fingers are more prominent. But without the lungs, they're dead. Without the heart, they're dead. Without the kidneys working, they're dead. So just because someone is not doing something prominent does not mean that they are not important in the context of the body of Christ. These are things that will expand some more sometime when the Lord brings us to books like 1st, 2nd Corinthians and even at the end of the book of Romans. Okay, But not all creatures have the same gestational periods. Some are one month, others are three months, human beings are nine months, 22 months for elephants. Others lay eggs. And the point that God is preaching by that is that the matter of works and fruitfulness have different gestational periods for different people. As God has determined for each one according to the measure of faith that he has given them. So God has to teach you. One of the things that I learned over the years that helped me with giving was that God will never be awed by anyone. If he gives you a situation that requires you to give, he has a way to pay you back. 100% he has done it faithfully to me. And because of that, I learned to trust to just give away money if that's what God requires of me. I've given out money and God always gives me my money one way or the other. I always get it back. So those are some of the things that frees us in the service of the body of Christ. We are not hoarding on to things, thinking, man, I had budgeted. I had a preacher friend of mine in Tennessee I listened to his message, and I was saving money to buy a camera. I saved, then I think I was about nine hundred bucks. And then I listened to this message, and he was talking about money and needing exactly what I saved. I'm, I was almost cursing at that, because I knew I was going to send it. And I ended up sending the money to him. And guess what? I think it was two months later, my HR manager came to me and said, "Oh James." We just realized that you've been overpaying your insurance premiums in the past year and you're going to have a check in the next paycheck and you're going to have another 1,400 extra. And repeatedly, I've had all kinds of things like that. And the point being that God is faithful, I was still able to buy my camera. And yet I met the need that God had given me to meet. All right? So in conclusion... Paul and James are using the same text of Genesis 15, verse 6. But they're not saying the same thing. Paul is speaking to objective justification before God. What makes you righteous before God. And James is speaking to the life of one who is redeemed in the community of believers. The testimony that you bring to the community of believers. So in the matter of justification, the justification that opens heaven's doors, it is only by the imputation of Christ's righteousness. There's no other way. But in the community of believers, the faith that justified is also at work in service to that body. Okay? So even though James uses the term justified, It is used in connection with the doing of imperatives or instructions. It has nothing to do with the imputation of the righteousness that makes you just before God. And we know by now that imperatives do not cause salvation. Okay? So Paul, as I said, somewhere in the middle of the message, was arguing for the priority of faith, of the doctrine of doing nothing in justification because of grace alone. And James was arguing for the proof of faith in service to others. The body of the church cannot function properly if nobody is doing anything for anyone. Someone has to get up and do some work of service Someone has to sacrifice something. And also in the body of the church, peace has to be maintained by reminding everyone that they are elect by grace alone, that they have the same standing, and none is special. So James explained that Abraham's faith was evident in the attempted sacrifice of Isaac. And therefore, he confirmed his justification. So works serve as evidence of justification, not as cause of justification. And even that, you need a questionary note to the matter of evidence. You have to be careful how much you go with the evidence of works, because it can be dangerous also. Because we know this. The thief on the cross had zero X. Like zero. He spent all his life stealing. Now that's not helping anybody. That's not in service to anybody. And yet he received the most faithful testimony of his salvation from Christ Jesus. Also, in the matter of infants who die young, elect infants who die young, they have zero X. And yet, they are justified apart from works. But I must say, whilst works are said to evidence salvation, the teaching needs more qualification. Because works that we do, even as a redeemed, can be duplicated by unbelievers. The unbelievers will actually outshine you when it comes to some of these things. That's why you have to be careful. What unbelievers cannot do is to say Christ alone is my righteousness. They can't say that. Christ alone is my redemption. They cannot say that. So the matter of works evidencing justification needs some boundaries to be drawn because as we also know the testimony of Matthew 7, the many who came to Jesus and said, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these wonderful things in your name? And then Jesus will say to them, depart from me, you lawless ones, I never knew you. Okay, so James is speaking of the joint role of faith and actions. Working together in service, not to cause salvation before God, but as testimony of Christ among the people of God. And faith being the driving force behind what we do, because apart from faith, I would not have spent the kind of money and time that I've spent on people. I'll just be keeping it to myself. Okay? Okay. Faith and deeds are essential. Faith is essential as the true testimony of justification. And deeds are more complementary, but they have to be complementary with some quotes because, as I said, you can be drawn back onto the treadmill. So, Abraham and rehab We are not justified by their own works before God but they were justified to themselves and other people that they were the people of God. Abraham was justified only by the faith of Christ. Right? The faith of Christ is what made Abraham righteous before God. But before other men and himself it had to be what he was doing because none would have understood what Abraham was saying. Okay, so that's how you and I have been justified by the faithfulness of Christ and whatever we do in the season that God will give us the strength and ability to do stuff it will come. I I talk to a lot of people young, middle age people who are advanced in years God has given them abilities to do share themselves, share their sources however he is determined for them I share my own time through the preaching of the gospel and I don't have any hope that my justification is in my preaching of the gospel my hope is in that Christ died and God accepted the payment on my behalf okay alright we are done, let's close it there let's pray Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the many words that have been spoken this morning. There's a lot of teaching, but the distinctions are necessary for us and your people to know by what manner sinners are justified, are made righteous before God. It is only by the righteousness of Christ imputed to them. And the works that we may do, they are only because you have ordained them and you are working in us to will and to do for a good pleasure. And they're only to the service of the body of Christ as testimony of our faith in him, but never to cause us to be justified by them before you. We honor you, glorify you for all things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, good people, I'm so tired. Okay? I do not want to do a part two to this message. But I still have a lot of things to talk about, as always. So, <laughs> so I pray this was a useful message. You can always get back to it and listen uh, when you are not under stress. You can listen one hour at a time. But we'll be back to Romans. That's where we'll be headed. Okay? All right. God bless you. Bye-bye.